You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Welcome to the show today. Um, I was pleased to note that we have escaped the snow warning that was forecast for London. That's moved south of the M25 now, so there's no risk of getting uh, snow on the way home, but definitely a chill wind blowing through Westminster, it seems, with uh, Rishi Sunak announcing plans to strengthen anti-protest legislation. This would give police additional powers to clamp down on demonstrations even before they've caused any disruption. There are um, demonstrations against that bill happening on Parliament Square today from unions. Of course, this is coming off the back of the anti-strike legislation as well, which seems to be a, a theme running through, Lizzie, some of these um, some of these parliamentary proposals. Indeed, highly unpopular with the unions who've got lots of announcements today. You've got the leaders of the GMB union meeting to decide whether to schedule more ambulance strikes. Aslev's executive, um, Aslev's executive community is going to discuss and likely reject the rail bosses offer to drivers and you've also got teachers in England and Wales expected to back strikes so we'll get the results of that ballot later this afternoon. I think a teacher is another subject that sends a chill down many people's spines, particularly parents who are worried about what's going to happen if schools are closed uh, when industrial action takes place as well so that's something else to watch for. We're expecting the results of that ballot of strike action uh, this evening. The General Secretary of the Teachers of the National Education Union, Mary Boosted, saying she's confident the vote will meet the minimum threshold required. There would then be two weeks notice to notify employers of action before that would take place as well. There's a separate ballot taking place too from head teachers unions too. So lots of action on the union front. We're also looking ahead towards the 1st of February, that day of action by the TUC. It's also the day that 100,000 civil servants from the PCS union are set to go on strike. But another ballot on industrial action in the public sector closes today. The FDA, which represents senior civil servants, is balloting its members on industrial action, seeking pay rises. We're joined now in studio by Dave Penman who's General Secretary of the FDA. Great to have you uh, with us. Thank you very much for coming into the studio. What exactly are you seeking in this dispute and are you expecting your members to vote for strike? 
Um, well, firstly, what we're seeking is a resolution of, of what has been a long-term problem for um, the graduates that come into the civil service. These are, are some of the top graduates in the country. Um, it's uh, an oversubscribed scheme by um, uh, uh, about 80 to 1. Um, and these are the kind of future permanent secretaries and cabinet secretaries um, uh, in the civil service. And yet uh, they've said to us that they want to take industrial action. They want better pay. Uh, they're currently some of the lowest paid graduates um, in the country. Um, and that's been a long term coming, uh, that dispute. It's just been exacerbated by the cost of living crisis that we're facing just now. But like so many of these disputes, it's just quite extraordinary that, that uh, people such as those are actually voting for industrial action. We've seen the first nursing strike in the 106 year history of the Royal College of Nursing, the first ambulance workers dispute since 89, the first national rail strike since 1995. So the kind of um, extraordinary series of events that we're facing around industrial action just demonstrates how deep this crisis is. Yes, we know what the other strikes look like. We've got people waiting to get into hospital wards. We've got trains paralysed across the country. What would be the effect? Give us an idea of the how we'll feel it if civil servants are striking. Well, the, the, there are a number of disputes. The, um, the PCS are striking on the 1st of February. That's going to be across the civil service in the areas that they've had a successful ballot. And that's going to be in most of the main government departments, seeing the kind of main services that the civil service operates from borders to um, uh, uh, benefit centres. Um, uh, we are uh, striking, uh, or we're potentially striking as well if, if our ballot result goes ahead. Those are people who do, they're on a graduate scheme, so a lot of them support ministers. That That's what they're doing. They're also operating across the civil service in both operational roles and, and management roles. So, uh, to be honest... For, for the people that, that we represent, it's more of the fact that they are actually striking, that that should shame um, ministers, that, that the sort of people that they're relying on that are supporting them in their private offices are telling us they're having to skip meals, that they're terrified of being rotated into central London because they can't afford to live, and that the sort of people who are, are choosing to come and work in the civil service, some of the brightest graduates in the country, feel that industrial action is, is an option that they want to take. Um, so and ministers should be ashamed of themselves, to be honest that they put these people in that position. You want ministers to see empty desks in their offices? Um, uh, they, they will if, if our, our, our members go go on strike. These are, they, these are in many cases, and it, it's quite extraordinary actually that this group have chosen to strike. Um, these are people who could choose to work in almost anywhere in the country. Um, they're the top graduates. Um, they could work in banks, they could work in consultancies, and instead of doing that, they choose to come into public service. And what they're telling us now is that they regret that that actually they wish they'd taken better paid jobs elsewhere. And if the government don't resolve this, they're going to lose a generation of the top talent um, for the civil service. A generation of top talent. How many people is that? Uh, just now, we, we are balancing just under a 1,000 uh, of um, uh, the fa our fast stream members. Um, as I say, this is really the kind of conveyor belt of talent pool, that these people become permanent secretaries and cabinet secretaries. Most cabinet secretaries, including the current one, came in as, as fast streamers. That's the sort of people that we're talking about, the most senior leaders in the country who will serve ministers and prime ministers in the future. Um, and they're telling us not only they want to take industrial action, first time in their history, but also that they are regretting that decision and want to leave the civil service as a result. And, and ministers need to think about the legacy they're leaving future generations if they treat this group of civil servants in this way. 
you've held talks with cabinet office ministers last week along with other unions representing civil servants what did you find from those talks? Did you, did you think they're open to a compromise? I, I mean, they were, they were cordial because they're, they're always cordial. But, but everyone wanted to talk about the current year and the minister only wanted to talk about 23, 24. So, well, yes, they've promised further talks. It was very much like the other talks with ministers have been characterised where um, uh, they want to appear to be talking to the unions. They want to appear as if they're trying to be constructive. But in reality, we're at a point in time now where the only thing that resolved this are proposals from government and we said to the minister beforehand you understand these issues we've been in to you beforehand we've given evidence to employers and review bodies we've put in pay claims explaining what's happening we've given you the surveys our members where they tell us what the consequences are it's not for a lack of understanding that 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 um these problems aren't being resolved it's a lack of proposals from government and there was nothing from the minister concrete in relation to the current year just wanting to talk about the review bodies and pay in 20 So you want to talk this year, they want to talk next year. Is the compromise going to be backdating pay so you can meet in the middle? There's many compromises. We are trade unions. What we do is negotiate. That's that's, that's what uh, I've done as a professional trade union officer for 30 years. We deal with any proposals, but there's nothing coming from the government. That's why, you know, the anti-strike legislation they're talking through is just a sideshow because it won't stop unions taking industrial action. It will only antagonise the situation further. The only thing that will resolve these disputes are proposals from the government to increase pay for the millions of workers who are considering taking industrial action in the middle of a cost of living crisis. And unless the government get their heads around that, then these strikes are going to continue. I'm curious with your experience um, as a trade union official, how do these negotiations compare to the past? Is this something particular to this government or this moment that we're seeing so many parts uh, of the country strike? Well, well, first of all, there's no negotiations. And I think if you talk to all of the trade union leaders, that is how they would characterise the dialogue with government. And that's part of the problem. There is not actually a negotiation. Because some are quite place. optimistic that we've spoken to that there could be that, you know, the signals are good. What, what, what they're getting is they're getting some signals from the media. I think there's a battle royal going on in government between ministers and the Treasury. Um, so, lots of suggestions. And you, you see them talking about bringing forward pay uh, rises um, or 2023 or you see the idea of a kind of one-off payment. Nothing has been put on the the table, certainly in the public sector. But um, what's quite interesting is the last time we were here and last time public sector was here was around pensions in 2011. Um, That was with a Conservative government as well. That was a really difficult industrial dispute. There were nearly 30 unions taking action, but we had a government at that point uh, and ministers who were prepared to engage. We were negotiating. And although it was difficult, and although there was a day of action across the public sector, including in my union, there was dialogue and we could see a way out of it. What we can't see really at this point in time is a way out of this because the government are not prepared to concede anything. And and whilst they do that, then unions have got no choice really but to respond to the demands being made of members, which is that they want to take industrial action and they want to force the government's hand. Look, Labour aren't in power yet, but the polls suggest they probably will be uh, in the next couple of years. Are you talking to them and do you feel... Do you get the sense that you'd be more likely to get a pay rise from them? Look, uh, 
I represent civil servants, and civil servants have a difficult relationship with the government today, regardless of the party um, that, that's, that, that's involved. We were nearly in dispute and voted for strike action, but it was resolved in tw- 2007 around pensions. That was with a Labour government. Labour, Labour can't solve this crisis just now, um, and who knows what they would do if they were in power. Um, the only people that can solve this crisis just now are the elected government of the day, and that means they need to get round the table, they need to talk to unions, and they need to put something on the table that we will negotiate around. That's the only solution to this dispute. Government should be solving these disputes, mm. not prolonging them. Um, and the, the citizens of the UK rightly expect that their government will try and make sure that trains do run, that ambulances do arrive. And that means talking to the people who deliver those vital public services. If you do get a ballot for strike action today, will you be aiming for February 1st as well? I, I think that's unlikely. Um, I, I think... Well, you know, no one wants to take strike action. So what we hope is that the government, uh, as it should be, will be thoroughly embarrassed by uh, our dispute and that they will want to sit down and talk with us. So the first thing we'll do when we get our uh, ballot result tomorrow, if it is in favour of action, will be to say to ministers, um, sit round the table and talk to us and try and resolve our dispute. And then we'll take it from there. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work 
passion and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The divide between the richest and poorest families in the UK is being made worse by sky-high inflation and unnecessary tax breaks. That's according to two separate reports from the Resolution Foundation and Centre for Business and Economic Research uh, out today. Our reporter Lucy White joins us now with the details. Lucy, these reports are pretty stark when we talk about the growing chasm that exists among Britain's households. Take us through what's in the reports. So uh, the CBR and YouGov have come out with a report saying that the lowest fifth of households uh, are unable to save and they are significantly more pessimistic about their finances than their richer counterparts. Um, households who were able to save during COVID um, are now finding it significantly harder to maintain those savings. Um, around 60% of households uh, significantly skewed towards the lower income end of the scale um, have now exhausted all of their buffers just trying to maintain everyday spending, um, everyday living standards. Um, from the Resolution Foundation, they have branded the UK's savings incentives not fit for purpose. Most of the £7 billion spent by the Treasury on those incentives goes to the richest families and households. And 750,000 families in the UK, meanwhile, have no savings at all. So I was listening to a talk that they put on this morning, um, which discussed, you know, do, do we cut back on ISA benefits and other savings incentives for the wealthy? Or do we auto-enrol benefits claimants uh, in the Help to Save scheme, which gives a government uh, incentive of 50p for every £1 saved? Um, you know, there's debate on, on where we should sit between those those two ideas um, or whether there are completely other alternatives that we should be looking at. But in terms of these savings incentives, we've had low interest rates 
being awful for savers for years. This isn't anything new, isn't it? The, the fact that low interest rates are low is is, is nothing new. Um, interest rates are now rising, however, so you know the, the, there are significantly more benefits that, that households can get from from saving. And the the fact that interest rates might be low and there are um, you know sort of not necessarily huge returns to be made for households doesn't uh, negate the fact that you know it, it does create significantly better outcomes for households if they do have a, a buffer, a, a sort of savings pot that they can use um, in eventualities of, you know, a boiler breakdown or, you know, repairs that need to be made to their home. Um, you know, there's, there's studies that show significantly better outcomes for households who do have um, savings, you know, for example, lower anxiety rates and, and so on. And that, that's very understandable as well. But it's really interesting to hear, I suppose, where we talk about the the gross number of savings being so large that there are so many families that don't have savings. What about the existing government help that exists here? What about the energy support package? Is that helping to sort of rebalance any of this? The energy support package is no doubt making it easier for for lower income households than it might otherwise have been. But, you know, it's only really going some way to restoring where people might have been without that. You know, the the soaring prices of energy have have really, uh, you know, kind of rocked households. And, you know, without that, you know, we would have seen significantly, we would have seen families in significantly worse positions than they currently are. And we've talked tax, we've talked interest rates, but what about housing and the slowdown, the correction they were expecting this year in the housing market? Well, there's been an inter- interesting report out from Hamptons International uh, this morning as well um, that one of my colleagues has written up um, showing that the poorest uh, families have um, seen the biggest rent increases over the past uh, decade. Um, they say that rent rent paid by households in the most disadvantaged areas has more than doubled in the decade to 2022. Um, and the annual rent increase for newly let homes in the year to December was 7.7%. Um, that, you know, uh, massively affects um, the, the poorest mm. households because almost a quarter of people in the poorest 10% uh, rent privately, which is, you know, a hugely larger proportion than in the uh, in the largest, um, in, in the more wealthy uh, group. So although, you know, we may be starting to see a correction in the housing market, um, that's not going to necessarily filter through to renters immediately. Yeah, certainly. And it's certainly not the, the demographics that you're talking about. And when we had that warning from the Financial Conduct Authority about the 750 households at risk of default on their mortgages uh, this year as well, we've got plummeting home ownership among younger people too. I mean, that's a, a very kind of toxic cocktail for the Tories that traditionally had been one of the parties that really pushed home ownership. Well, exactly. And I mean, um, you know, Keir Starmer has spoken about uh, wanting... of households to own their own homes, which, you know, appears to be backing house building. Um, You know, the Tories have been held back by, uh, you know, NIMBYs, uh, (laughs) people who don't want, you know, housing developments to be to be done in their area, to be to be completed in their backyard. Um, And, you know, this would be less so perhaps under a Labour government due to their, you know, the demographic that they they hope will vote for them. And, you know, if, if they were to get a majority in uh, in the House of Commons at the next election, you know, maybe that would be, uh, it would be easier for them to push through these these house building policies. Um, they've also said that they wouldn't go ahead with the uh, fuel duty rise, for example, um, in the next budget. So, you know, Labour are trying to cut, undercut the Tories, perhaps on some of these areas, which would really help lower income um, 
families. Now, Lucy, I think I'm right in saying that this is your first time on the UK <laughs> Politics Podcast. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you very much. Uh, new, our new UK economy reporter. I wonder, as you look ahead to the rest of 2023, are there any reasons to be optimistic? Well, it could be a year of two halves, I think. You know, we've got... Um, you know, inflation expected to fall off quite rapidly from the second half of this year. Um, you know, house prices is a bit of an unknown at the moment. You know, we've uh, we've heard people talking at the end of last year about, you know, where where house prices are going to go, the the, the slowing down in the market. But you know, for example, this morning, um, Rightmove had their latest house price index out that showed you know remarkably buoyant activity for the first few weeks of this year so you know I think it could be that the first half of the year is pretty grim as we're still facing you know near record high uh, inflation and um, you know falling living standards but the second half of this year potentially could get a little easier. Yeah, something to be optimistic about. Lucy White, thank you very much. A year of two halves and a story of two halves as well, looking at those reports from the Resolution Foundation and the CEBR and as well bringing us some of the other economic indicators that we're watching, those right move figures showing prices the property sellers are looking for up 0.9% in January. So there have been declines in the previous uh, two months of that as well. Lucy White, thank you very much. The Foreign Secretary James Cleverley and the EU's Brexit negotiator Mara Shevchevich are speaking today and the hope is that they'll find enough common ground for talks over the post-Brexit trading rules in Northern Ireland to enter the so-called tunnel. That's the final secret intensive phase of negotiations. It comes as many in the business community are raising concerns about Brexit's impact on the UK economy. Earlier, we spoke to Mary Buckley, the interim CEO of IDA Ireland, which is the Irish government foreign direct investment agency. She talked to us about how Brexit has influenced their work. Obviously, since 2016, um, Ireland had been preparing for Brexit. And while we were very disappointed to see the UK leave um, the EU, we are obviously uh, mindful uh, that much investment was uh, obviously reconsidering as well. And uh, I think from us, from an FDI perspective over the years, and we've stopped really counting now since um, uh, Britain left the EU, we have won a lot of investment, uh, particularly in financial services. And uh, in certainly, I think it's safe to say that, you know, over 100 plus companies have relocated or uh, expanded activities into Ireland um, on the back of Brexit. So um, for, while it's been challenging for the country, from an FDI perspective, you asked, as you asked, it has brought new investments. And certainly today, you know, Brexit is part of the consideration of all companies. Um, and what's hugely important, of course, for companies uh, when they are looking uh, at new locations is uh, Ireland's membership of the EU. And we're very strong in that regard. And I think that's been very, very helpful to us, as well as the very stable economic and political environment that we're working in. So I think, you know, those along with a 70 plus year track record of attracting multinationals to Ireland has been very, very positive um, and would hope would be would continue to be into the future. That's Mary Buckley, the interim CEO of IDA Ireland. She's given us one perspective there on how Ireland has dealt with the Brexit issue. Of course, still lots of unknowns about exactly where this process will go next. But we have had these positive indications, Lizzie, going into these talks that there there has been movement. Uh, we had the deal on t- t- sharing 
trade data, which was a really key issue for the EU. Um, what other topics are kind of the key issues that are outstanding? Yes, and that agreement on the real-time trade database opening the door potentially to a broader customs deal. But lots of sticking points still to be resolved. For example, the role of the European Court of Justice checks on agri-food products, VAT, state aid. And even if London can get Brussels on side, even though Keir Starmer, the opposition Labour leader, has said that he would help the government to get a bill, any deal through Parliament, Rishi Sunak would still need to get his own Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party on side and he'd have to get it past the Unionists in Northern Ireland. They could prove the most tricky to persuade here. We know, as Therese Raphael wrote in her column last week, their favourite word is no. Uh, and anything that resembles a border in the Irish Sea, they're going to oppose. Yeah, and that's going to be you know, really tricky for, as you say, to get agreement on all sides on what exactly works for everyone in this. For the UK, how important could an agreement be? Because we were hearing earlier from our colleague Maria Tadeo in Brussels that, you know, from the EU's point of view, they're they're sort of over this and, and looking at other crises, but it's a it's a bigger deal here. Yeah, it's small fry in Brussels. They're looking at Ukraine, they're looking at the US Inflation Reduction Act. But here, for Rishi Sunak, it could be a big win. Um, and also for Northern Ireland, if they can end this political stalemate. So the hope is that they can reach an agreement by the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement in April and hopefully coincide it with a visit from Joe Biden. Yeah, plenty to watch out for there. Um, something that we will bring you, keep keep you up to date on, on the show as well as we get developments. Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you usually listen. This episode was produced by James Woolcock and Marufal Hussain was on sound. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.